This is The Ethicist, a podcast from the New York Times Magazine. I'm Amy Bloom, novelist and writer-in-residence at Wesleyan University, and along with my co-hosts, we're going to debate and then answer some of the tricky ethical questions Times Magazine readers send in every week. And let me introduce my co-hosts, Anthony Appiah and Kenji Yoshino. Anthony teaches philosophy, Kenji teaches law, both at New York University. Welcome, Anthony. Hi. Welcome, Kenji. Hi, Amy. Coming up, we'll tackle reader questions about if a rose by any other name could get hired, the case of the dumped desk, and how we judge the moral decisions of others. Let's go right to our first question. Is it ethical to modify my name on a job application to prevent unconscious bias? For instance, if my name were Samantha, I could apply as Sam. Or if my name were Jose, I could apply as Joe to prevent discrimination based on gender or assumed ethnicity. If it is ethical, up to which point may I modify? Signed, A.R. London. Well, okay. <laughs> Somebody should leave in. Look, uh, I think that the phenomenon of implicit bias is, is really important, and there's lots and lots of evidence of it. So we do need to think about what to do about it, uh, because in the case of implicit bias... The, since the person themselves doesn't know that they're responding to your ethnicity or your gender, they themselves can't correct for it because they don't yet know that they're doing it. Uh, my, my view is that in res- uh, because we know about this, it is a reasonable question to ask yourself, can I remove from the information that I provide to the person who's trying to evaluate me any irrelevant thing that will uh, get in the way of their making a good a judgment based on the things in my dossier that actually matter? But... It seems to me you can't reshape the dossier in such a way as to get them to believe something false about you. So if your name is Jose and you modify it to Joe, that is on one side of the divide. But if you are a man and your name is Sam and you, in quotes, modify your name on the application to be Samantha, that's on the other side of the divide because that's lying. I think when it's a clear case of lying, that's that's way over the that's way over the edge. And by the way, it's not only uh, unethical; it's dumb, because you're going to end up in an interview with someone who's expecting, uh, who's who's entitled to expect, if you give yourself the name Samantha, who's entitled to expect a woman, and they're going to think of you as someone not entirely honest. And that's not the very best way to begin an interview. So it's not it's not wise. But also, I think it's just wrong. Even if even if the job were to be decided only on the basis of the CV, suppose you were going to get the job. Without an interview, I still think you ought not to um, intentionally mislead people. But on the other hand, I think it's perfectly okay to deny them irrelevant information. If you can, without If you lying. can, if you can. Of course, there's something slightly, um, is shabby an ethical word? There's something slightly <laughs> um, un- unhappy about someone who deliberately conceals a fact about themselves of which they themselves rightly are not ashamed in order to get a job. And I remember once I was talking to, to a couple of my nephews who are Nigerian, and the one said, uh, when I'm asked uh, where I'm from, I say I'm from West Africa, because in England, Nigerians have a rather poor reputation. And the other one says, you know, I always say I'm Nigerian, because I think if I can show them that there are good Nigerians, maybe the prejudice will go away. And this is a thought that people have had about about coming out as gay and so on, that that on the one hand, nobody's entitled to treat you badly because you're gay. On the other hand, you're surely not under an obligation in every circumstance to 
uh, draw attention to the fact that you're gay, and yet we, we sort of more admire the people who are willing to bear the burden. Exactly. President Barack Obama was told that he could not win national office with two weird names. So he was told to go back to being Barry Obama. I think that was how he was known in high school. Uh, but I don't think I'm the only person, regardless of you know political affiliation, whose heart kind of swelled with pride when the president was asked how he would like to be sworn in on Inauguration Day by Chief Justice Roberts. And he said, by my name, Barack Hussein Obama. So if anything, he kind of tripled down right on <laughs> the authenticity point. So I really like Anthony's point about the second nephew, uh, because on the one hand, we don't want to blame the victim to make individuals take the hit for being authentic. But unless people are authentic, the biases might not change. So I think that it's a great value in um, pushing the authenticity in order to make people either confront their unconscious biases or their conscious biases for that matter. And I think if part of our understanding of ethical is a good and happy life. I think hiding who you are is, 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 makes it a bad prospect, you know, to have an ethical, good, and happy life. And it's understandable that people are inclined to do that. Um, we have that back and forth about, you know, people saying, oh, that's my private life. That was the line for a long time about people not revealing um, their sexuality. But it becomes very difficult sometimes, even internally, for people to tell the difference between it's none of anybody's business and I am ashamed. Yeah, I think it's absolutely crucial that, that, that the, 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 the suffering there is, is, includes a kind of internal suffering because you yourself can lose track of the, of the question, is it I who am ashamed? Or is it they who are bigoted against me? And it's just right. And you keep you 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 know you you try to keep it in the forefront that you're doing it to protect yourself, and it's the smart thing. But I think it also has a corrosive effect. What about when um, the person who is named Joe is applying to a company where he thinks it will be in his interest to refer to himself as Jose? What do we think about that kind of application? Is it the same rule? You can you can imply something as long as you don't lie. That's a more complicated instance, Amy, because if you think about why the individual might benefit from adopting a uh, minority uh, name, it's because the employer has some spirit of inclusion or affirmative action to try and include minorities or to make up for past harms or what have you. So if you ordinarily go by Joe, but then adopt Jose only for that purpose, you are actually getting the benefits of the affirmative action without having to take the hit of discrimination for which the affirmative action was intended to be a remedy. So it takes a slightly different cast for me than uh, these previous examples that we've been yeah, I, I, considering. I think it takes an entirely different right. cast, and I'm, I'm glad you made that explicit. I think it takes, makes a different cast, not least because in the one case, what you're trying to do is to, is to undo the effect of a bad thing. And in this case, you're trying to undermine the effect of a good thing. And those That's seem right, to for be, your own advantage. For your own advantage. And those seem to be very different things. Just to be fair to our questioner, our questioner was asking us only to consider the first kind of case, the, the uh, unconscious bias avoidance cases. And those, I think, we, we all agree with, her, with him or her about. And then on the how far can I go question, also to be fair to the letter writer, uh, the question of how far you can go without actually lying uh, is a really uh, fascinating one for me, uh, because I think that 
a lot of this depends on convention. So I think we're really used to people using stage names like, you know, Ramon Estevez going as Martin Sheen or Krishna Banji going as Ben Kingsley or, you know, in the writerly world, you know, J.K. Rowling using initials because women were viewed to be less adept as fantasy writers and then using Robert Galbraith to break into a new genre without all of the Harry Potter baggage. So I think that there are certain fields in which the convention means that we don't rely, which I think of what lying is really about. We don't rely on the idea that the name that we're presented with is necessarily the true name on the birth certificate for the individual. But outside of those fields, I agree with Anthony that um, different norms rightly apply. The only thing that I have to add is that, you know, when we were talking about the uh, Sam to Samantha issue, there is this notion of legally changing your name, right? So well, that's what I was going to say. If you feel strongly that your chances are going to be better with a different name, go legally change your name. And internal to the law about changing your name, one of the standards, I mean, it varies state by state, but one of the common standards for whether you can do it or not is whether you're doing it for fraudulent purposes. So again, Anthony's lying principle comes into the law and is internalized within that law. But I think that we would all agree, you know, around uh, this table uh, that if you formally change your name, then that truly is a change and it's not a lie, that you have not lied by formally altering your name. I think we, we do agree that trying to keep irrelevant information from your employer is not unethical. Lying to your employer is. And pragmatically, there are real and obvious limits to shifting the name on your application if you plan to have an interview. I'm down with that. All right, let's dive into the next letter. I recently got a text from a college friend asking if I still have a desk she lent me four years ago. Senior year of college, she moved out of our apartment and left the desk in my room. She said I could use it. She did not explicitly say I could have the desk, but she didn't ask about it for the next four years. I moved it twice, and by the third move, it was just too much of a hassle as I was downsizing apartments. I assumed that since so much time had passed and she hadn't requested returning the desk, it was okay to discard it. Now I'm receiving texts from her saying that it was a family heirloom, meant so much, how could I do this? Am I on the wrong here? Do I owe her anything? Please help. Name withheld, Milwaukee. For me, the critical part of this question was the fact that they have been in touch during the four years. They have been texting back and forth. She says her friend did not ask about the desk for the next four years, which implies that they have been in touch over the last four years. And so what is striking to me is not just the carelessness of the desk owner, who's now taking a very strong tone, but the fact that the desk user never picked up the phone, never texted her friend and said, want your desk? You know, I think if she had lost, if they had lost touch, I would absolutely understand and be sympathetic and consider it to be ethical to dump it. But I think she could have easily found out what the answer was, and she chose not to. Yeah, I, I agree that uh, it would have been better to uh, get in touch at the time of the dumping. And I think uh, there's something that the friend could have done, which is to have made it clear all along that this was an important possession. And since she hadn't done that, you might say that that uh, relieves our questioner of her obligation because uh, it wasn't made clear to her 
And that's because, I mean, the background thing here is that we need objects to give stability to our lives. I hate to drag him in, but, um, <laughs> but, but Hegel actually said that the, thought, that the whole point of the institution of property was to allow us to give stability to our plans. But what, what gives stability to our plans is different for a table, for, for a coconut, uh, for a piece of land, uh, and so on. So different kinds of property, uh, from an ethical point of view, it seems to me, uh, we have to think about differently. We have to think about what role do they play. And in the case of a table like this, it seems to me you can't really suddenly invent the issue of family significance if you haven't made it plain to the person that you were lending the desk to that that's what you were doing. Because the way we think about the transfer of um, rights is different in the case of a family heirloom. We understand that in that case, if somebody puts something into your possession which has deep significance for them, that uh, you shouldn't get rid of it without permission. Should I be depressed? Anthony, that, that you think about Hegel and I go to the common law of abandonment of chattel. <laughs> I think I should be depressed. Um, <laughs> I, but... I think Hegel would be delighted. <laughs> <laughs> well, As long as the common law of abandonment of chattel agrees with him. <laughs> uh, I'm happy to report that at least some of the statutes that I found do, and they essentially say that if you're the original owner and you, you know, abandon your property, meaning you leave it in the care or custody of another person. That's included within the definition of abandonment. And you fail to maintain, pay for the storage of, exercise dominion or control over, or otherwise declare ownership rights in the tangible personal property for over a year. So the time frame is important. Then the ownership of the property goes from you to the person to whom you uh, left it in the care and custody of. So the question is really, you know, does ethics require something more than the law, right? And I have to admit that I'm kind of in the mealy-mouthed middle here. You know, I completely agree with uh, Amy that the call should have been made, right? And I think that we're... And that it was an obligation to the friendship to make the phone call. It's not like it would have been difficult even to fulfill that obligation. Right. So there's fault on both sides here. But I think what Anthony is saying is that you know, if we're actually in the position where, okay, the call hasn't been made and now the original owner is guilt-tripping you, right, should you feel bad about it? And I think that Anthony makes... She could makes feel bad about it. A, but I think Anthony makes a pretty <laughs> persuasive case that, you know, the, there's fault on both sides, but the greater fault is probably with the person who uh, is the original owner uh, insofar as she allowed this uh, second party to rely on the use of the desk for four years without telling her that it's a family heirloom. This sounds like important information to give that could have changed the calculus. I, th I think feeling bad about it is okay, but the fact is we were asked whether, uh, w whether anything is owed here. Um, well, she also asked, am I in the wrong Yes, here? yes. So on the question of am I in the wrong, I'd say... Um, my nanny used to say two wrongs don't make a right, but certainly there are both there are wrongs on both sides here. But on the question of what's owed, I do think the answer is that um, there's nothing that you can do apart from apologize to uh, restore the sentimental interest. And I don't believe this person owes the, as it were, the market value of the table for the reason I gave. So I say you apologize. You say you 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 got rid of it. You and the apology should be genuine. So you, you're, what you mean is, um, I understand that I uh, did something here that you might have a reason to resent, uh, but I don't owe you anything. 
if you had told me that the table was precious and needed special care, I might have, uh, I might owe you something. Uh, though, as I say, generally speaking, the loss when something of sentimental value is lost is not the kind of loss for which uh, payment uh, is going to be uh, any kind of uh, uh, morally appropriate response. The morally appropriate response is an apology. Right, and that and that Anthony's nanny was right. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. Everybody, oh. apologies on all sides. How about that as a government? That's right, and and no cookies. Okay, on to our last question. I have a dear friend who had a devastating illness and lost her job as a letter of appointment professor. Other than a small retirement fund, which she liquidated, and a small pension, she had no income. She applied for many jobs, over 100, but was turned down for all of them. She's of a certain age and has to use crutches to walk. She finally found a well-paying job writing papers for college students through an online service. She's an excellent writer and was able to move out of her son's home to a tiny apartment and pay her bills. I've come to terms with her decision, but others feel she is contributing to the plagiarism, great inflation, degree for sale system. What was she to do? Thank you for your thoughts. Name withheld, Reno. Well, I guess my thought is that um, the reason that she's in this situation where she has to make this choice between um, doing what the only job she's been able to find and doing nothing <laughs> and therefore uh, being dependent upon somebody else is that we live in a society in which the resources for a decent independent life are not guaranteed to everybody. And I think the resources for a decent independent life ought to be guaranteed to everybody that that's one of the uh, elements of distributive justice in a society. And if she were living in, in Norway or in Sweden or in Denmark, I suspect that this is not a choice she would have to make. She could say, well, I am being given sufficient support to lead a decent independent life. I'll go on looking for a job, but I don't have to take this job that uh, that I don't find it, uh, that I understand is obviously morally unattractive. Now, just to be clear, the what's the part of the reason why I don't feel uh, too inclined to blame her is that while the system that she's participating in is bad, it it it, it encourages dishonesty. It it undermines our systems of evaluation. It contributes to people getting jobs they're not qualified for. It it does lots of bad things. It's a really bad business, but her pulling out of it, unfortunately, won't make any difference to that system. So she's um, she has to choose between uh, finding this one way that she's found available for a life of dignity and independence on the one hand and participating in a bad system, but in a way that doesn't make it any worse. And I think it's understandable in those circumstances that she... Um, that, that it's just wrong to ask her to bear the responsibility for the wrongness of the whole system, a system that she couldn't uh, bring to an end simply by pulling out of it. And I would say that uh, all these people that you know who are uh, worried that she's contributing uh, to the professional, what is it, the plagiarism, grade inflation, degree for sale system and undermining important values, all the people who focus on that should perhaps spend more of their moral energy on trying to, for example, campaign to make those things illegal, trying to make these factory, these uh, essay factories disappear, or maybe even more importantly, perhaps campaigning to um, make sure that the disabled unemployed get what they need for a decent life and don't have to be drawn into these unsavory activities. Or they could help her. My thoughts about these others who feel that she is contributing to this system 
is that if they are so distressed about how she chooses to make her independent living after she applied for a hundred jobs, that maybe they should take some serious action to give her more choices directly. Maybe they can do active outreach for months, let's say until each of them have contacted a hundred people among all their friends and acquaintances to see if they can help her find a job that is less ethically unsavory. And their efforts on her behalf, if she was amenable, would be, for me, a lot more ethically pleasing and a lot more on the moral high ground than this kind of useless, pointless disdain. I, I don't really have a lot of quarrel with her. I think it's really unfortunate that we have a system in which somebody like this would be forced into an ethically unsavory job, but the people who seem to me to be really in the wrong are these others who are judging her while doing not a thing to make it different. I don't want to let the individual totally off the hook there, uh, here, though. So a lot for me turns on whether the individual described is continuing to look for another job. I think Anthony alluded to this earlier. So I think in life as it's lived, a lot of us have to do unsavory things to um, survive. I won't describe all the secrets of the prison house of being a <laughs> law professor and all the terrible, <laughs> horrible things that I have to do. Um, and like Anthony, I assume that she's made a good faith effort to find a job. And I think we have to take uh, this at face value that she's applied for lots of uh, jobs before taking this one. But for me, the crux is between whether or not she relaxes into this unsavory job as a perpetual enterprise and thinks of it as her job or whether she just considers this to be something that will tide her over and she continues to look for a job. Because if she continues to look for a job that both allows her to lead a decent life and to avoid this extraordinarily damaging enterprise, uh, then I think that that would be the, the best of both worlds. So I actually don't disagree, Amy, with anything that you've said in that I think it would be uh, great if people used, you know, reached out, uh, their hands to her rather than uh, using those hands to, you know, wag their uh, <laughs> fingers. Um, but uh, Where they wag their comfortable, mobile fingers. Yeah. <laughs> but at the same time, I feel like um, you might be letting the person, both of you might be letting the person too easily the, uh, off the, too much off the hook here, that, that she has some agency uh, too. And it's important to respect her agency um, to continue to look for a better path, even as she understandably is in this unsavory position. Well, I mean, I don't disagree, but I also think, you know what, if she's a woman of a certain age, so let's say that that's somewhere in her 60s, and she applied for over 100 jobs and was turned down for all of them and has to use, use crutches to walk, and um, her previous job was as an academic— the idea that she is going to find another well-paying job that isn't in this category strikes me as so unlikely that there's a part of me that would be really reluctant to say to her, make sure that you devote 15 hours a week <laughs> to continuing to apply for jobs that we all know perfectly well you will never get. Right. And I guess that's the thing that pushed me towards, you know, who are these finger-wagging others and why don't they do something? <laughs> And that's it for The Ethicists. If you'd like to send us your ethical quandary or comment on the show, you can reach us at ethicists at nytimes.com. 
If you'd like to leave a voicemail question for us to answer on the show, the number is 212-556-7070. If you like the show, please be sure to tell a friend and subscribe to us on iTunes. Our producer is Carrie Hillman, and the music is by the band Broke for Free. For Anthony Appiah and Kenji Yoshino, I'm Amy Bloom. We'll talk to you next week on The Ethicists.